Broadcasting from the Wella offices, direct from the Atlanta Tech Village, you're listening to The Incubator, the voice of the Atlanta Tech startup scene. The Incubator is a weekly show featuring Atlanta-based startup founders, influencers, and entrepreneurs. Who they are, what drives them, and how they plan to change the world. Today's show is made possible by Wella, helping you on your financial journey every step of the way. And now, here are today's hosts. All right. Good morning and welcome back to The Incubator. I am your host, Todd Schnick, joined by my friend and colleague, Ashley Staggs. Good morning, Staggs. How are you? I'm good. I'm ready to get this one going. It took me a second to figure out what the name means. And then it finally hit me. And now it's like the greatest name I've heard. So I, I think that we, we're going to get some good stories from this it one. It's so good to partner with such bright and brilliant people. <laughs> you just got to give me a minute, Todd. <laughs> it's I'm gonna not be a machine. Fun, it's going to be a fun conversation. It and is. so, so important. Yeah. I, I don't think people realize it's going to be it's going to be a critically important conversation. Now, let's get to it. We're joined by David Trice. He is the CEO of Engage CX. David, welcome to the show. Todd, thanks for having me. Happy uh, to be here. Uh, we're happy to have you. Thanks for carving out some valuable time to join us. I, I know you you're a busy fellow and doing a lot of amazing work. So we're grateful for the time. David, before we get into a conversation around Engage CX, take a quick second. Tell us a bit about you and your background. Unlike many here in Atlanta, I'm a long time native to Atlanta. So I went you're the to, one. I'm the one, exactly. <laughs> went to Georgia Tech, graduated Georgia Tech. I take great pride in saying that I've never lived farther north than I do now in Roswell. Um, <laughs> And uh, I've been an entrepreneur here in Atlanta. In fact, was a part of, uh, an employee of, one of the first companies that came out of ATDC that, that did really well back in the day. Mm. Uh, and I've got gray hair, so you can you can date that yourself. Realized through that experience that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, so I went out on my own and did some consulting for a while. And then finally... Uh, late 1990s, started my own firm called Revenue Technologies. And it was a CRM-based firm. Uh, We were building some deal management, price optimization kind of capabilities for uh, business-to-business relationships. And we plugged that into CRM platforms. So I've I've known CRM basically my whole career. Well, fortunately, uh, after having raised some money and surviving a couple of uh, booms and busts in the early 2000s, uh, in 2007, Oracle acquired that company. And it had a, a really opportune time there where spent a couple of years taking that technology and integrating it to Siebel CRM and Fusion CRM. And for the last couple of years, uh, was fortunate to be uh, tapped to to bring to come over and help bring forward the next generation Fusion CRM and bring it to market. And that entailed uh, identifying early adopter customers and uh, trying to get their input to finish the product off all the way through a global launch through our 10,000 person sales team and, and so forth. And did, did that from a product management perspective. And in that experience really is kind of what led us to Engage CX. In fact, and, and there's a, a very poignant story along the way that was the the seed that got planted to uh, to create this business now. What is the impetus for Engage CX and what does it do? So if we go back to my days at Oracle, one of the roles that I had was being able to take our roadmap and our vision for Fusion CRM and share it with the largest companies in the world, our largest customers. And on a number of occasions, I was fortunate uh, to be in a position to, to share that story with a consumer-facing business. And I'll give you an example of meeting with uh, AT&T here in town. I, I often refer to it as the most embarrassing meeting of my career. <laughs> and so here I am, I'm, I'm in a room and you can imagine AT&T, they've got their three EVPs 
he's running their three major businesses in the room. So a very high level meeting and Oracle in, in true fashion shows up with 15 salespeople and me. And I've got the deck that uh, that's being presented. And it's all about B2B CRM and where we're going and where social is going to fit in. And we had just acquired a company right now technologies that brought this idea of customer experience to the table and how we integrate that in going forward. And about halfway through the presentation, the head guy at the table from uh, AT&T stopped me and said, hey, this is great. Love what you're saying. We subscribe to it. In fact, we bought into most everything you're saying a couple of years ago. My big problem is where does my store fit into your digital strategy? Well, I was a B2B guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about stores, right? And I knew that the rest of my presentation didn't have anything about stores <laughs> in it either. And he was very gracious. We kind of bantered around the room with uh, 13 other people, 14 other people at the time, and uh, nobody had an answer for his question. He, he gave us an opportunity to come back at a later date with an answer. That idea fell apart of how we bring the store into a CRM discussion was not one that we really had a good answer to. So that was the, the seed at that point. And, and then a, on a few other conversations with similar kinds of consumer facing companies, I started hearing the same recurring theme and I kind of rationalized it to how do you bridge digital and physical? And so there's really a juxtaposition there from a B2B point of view, right? In the B2B world, there's a sales guy that drives the process. In the consumer world, we're all consumers. We know we drive a process. When it's time to buy a car or a pair of shoes or whatever it is we're looking to buy, when we're ready to buy it, we create our own journey, right? We start, we initiate, we go to the website, we go to the store and it's completely inverted. So how do you take that reality where the consumer drives the process and create a customer-aware platform around it? And so that's the impetus, really. is, And it was born out of experience over a career and realizing that what consumer-facing firms needed was the complete opposite of what the B2B CRM firms were providing. Therein kind of, uh, you know, set the path for, for where I was headed. I left Oracle after the global launch and found a partner here in town who was shepherding some technology that uh, was a good place to start and incubate the idea and proof of concept the idea. We got a lot of really good feedback. And about six months beyond that, we started the company. And here we are. And so you can think of Engage CX as a customer-aware central nervous system. So you think about yourself as a consumer. You get emails from people, you visit their website, you may chat with them on their website, you go to their store, you call them for help. All of these things are touch points. All of these touch points for retailers and hospitality firms and financial services firms are largely built on separate data models. The data lives separately in these silos that really aren't connected in any way, shape, or form. And so when you call somebody up or when you walk in the store, chances are they don't know who you are and they don't know that the other touch point just happened. And you're starting from scratch every time that takes place. And so what we do is we kind of sit in the middle of all of that and like a central nervous system, connect the dots so that I can see that you just called. I can see that you just walked in the store. I can see that you were on the website and I can use that information to kind of make these touch points more intelligent about what, who you are and what you're doing in real time. And, and that's game changing. It is. If, if a, a retail operation can understand that. I have 50 directions I could take this conversation <laughs> and I, I have to figure out where I'm going to go next. Let me set the table with a couple of things that I've recently heard that uh, Ashley and I have no lives and so our lives are in this tech bubble, right? And so mm-hmm. everything, I, I it, and it's one of my goals to never actually go into a physical store again. I want Amazon to deliver me everything I need, but that's not the reality for most of the world. I mean, I I think of the people who go out and buy a product, a a consumer who buys a product, only 7% of that is online. If I have my numbers correctly now, Take that and then think about what happened just on Black Friday. And you might have the stat right. I may get it wrong. And if I get it wrong, please correct me. But I think it was the first time that over 50% of the purchases made were online. Right. 
I, I can't get my head around this two what seem to me very different and polar opposite pieces of, of data. But the, I'm sure you can weave that together. It, it, that's fascinating to me. But I think people forget that still most people are buying things in a physical store. But, and I think most people who own that physical store don't even realize the potential with what digital can do for them, right? Therein lies our opportunity, right? right? We're real, really at the cusp of the statement you just made. And, and so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of data that's coming out to support kind of the, the idea and the thought process you just outlined. One good report from uh, Deloitte over the summer that came out um, suggests that uh, retail commerce is a $2.9 trillion business, okay? $0.3 trillion is e-commerce. All right, so let me get that. Repeat that, oh, please. Wow. So, two point nine trillion. Two point nine trillion is total retail commerce. Bricks and mortar. No, all. Oh, okay. All commerce. Got it. Got it. Keep up, Todd. Yep. Of that, <laughs> of that, point three trillion is online e-commerce. Got it. The remainder is either mobile, specifically, or digital, more generically, influenced in-store sales. Uh-huh. Therein lies the opportunity, mm-hmm. right? And that's the business world that we're stepping into, saying to these retailers, what if you knew that Todd was on your website? He picked out a pair of shoes. He got to the shopping cart. He abandoned that shopping cart and walked away. Three days later, he shows up in your store, and you knew who he was and what he just did. Would that change the game on the relationship that now you have with Todd going forward? I believe it would. So that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do is bridge that digital and physical reality so that you are one customer and you've got one set of behaviors that are known to everybody at any given point in time. And that's so interesting to me because I think there's so many different interactions that a customer has with uh, any company that's brick and mortar and online. I have things that I see in the store, but they don't have my size. So I buy them online or they don't have it at the location that's near my office. So I go and buy it at the one by my house. How are you empowering retailers to take all of that information? Because a lot of times in e-commerce companies or in retail companies, those divisions are separated. Right. So you've got your e-commerce team and then you have your brick and mortar team. So how is this, how is Engage CX empowering them to kind of take all of that data and make really smart decisions about their relationship with the customer? Phenomenal question. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you two answers to it. First of all, at the very core of what we do, very simple way to think about our, our service is an attribution platform, right? And so all of these touch points, we connect to and wrap metadata around in order to attribute what just happened, who you were and the things and the context around that event. And so in doing so, in that same example where Todd was on the website, now I actually can see how the sale was attributed right? It actually started online, but ended up in the store. And I can see and associate revenue through those two channels now. So the problem of these two businesses being separate, we're able to kind of connect because I can see the customer journey and therein I can connect the dots and attribute appropriately how the revenue was generated as a result. Campaign may have led you to the website, but you bought in the store. I can now see that and take it all the way down potentially to the sales associate who's assisting you. That becomes game-changing because therein lies a lot of the problem that exists today operationally with these businesses because everybody wants credit for their revenue. Why? Because that's how how my paycheck gets generated. And when you are are able to start to see uh, how revenue flows 
and attribute accordingly, you can ensure that people get credit for the, the part of the sale that is, is truly theirs and it doesn't impact them as much personally as a result. So that's one level of visibility that we're providing. On a little bit more of a kind of a capability level, the notion of digitally influenced in-store sales is a very real thing. And in years past, I know you've all heard of the concept of showrooming and how retailers were scared to death that they were getting showroomed. Best Buy almost went out of business. The tables are turning on that. And, and more and more, what's happening is retailers are saying, okay, I am a showroom. How do I take that idea and turn myself into a destination? Because studies show the longer I can get somebody to stay in my store, the higher the in-store sales, then higher ticket sales will be for a, given, for a given purchase. So what are the things I can do to create a better in-store experience? Uh, we were talking earlier before the show. Uh, one of the things we do is uh, we, we integrate into Wi-Fi platforms. And Wi-Fi platforms are getting really intelligent these days and being able to triangulate where you are in a store. We can use that triangulation to map out regions and areas of the store so that I can see that you're in shoes or you're in clothes or you're in the dressing room, perhaps, which is a point of conversion, right? Just like a, like, just like a, uh, a checkout on the website. So if I can start to now have visibility into activity and attribute activity in the store, then guess what? I actually want people to use Wi-Fi in the store. Right. Interesting concept, right? Now I'm in the store and the thing that I used to be concerned about was price comparison. Right. Now I want them actually to get on the Wi-Fi and stay longer. Let me deliver a better experience. Let me gather more data about what they're doing and then even encourage them to purchase on my website when they're in my store. Now I've been able to give them a point of sale device that they can use at their leisure to find the thing that they don't see on the shelf. And that solves two problems. Now you've personalized your own shopping experience, but it also keeps you from having to go stand in the line that's got 12 people in it. So there's a lot of things that are happening to try and really take that store and turn it back into the asset that it used to be. You're not supposed to make it easier for Mrs. Schnick to spend money. (laughs) Come on. All right. David Trice will return after this short break. We'll be right back. This is Wes Moss, former host of Atlanta Tech Edge on NBC in Atlanta. I'm here today, though, to talk to you about my new digital financial advisory firm, Wella. Wella is an old English word that means wealth. Several years ago, my team realized there were too many people who needed help with their financial strategy, but couldn't get the help they needed because they didn't reach the high investment minimums of many financial advisory firms. To answer this need, we developed Wella, a digital platform that allows us to help people just like you get free financial advice and tools to better manage their finances. We also offer online investing and the ability to work with your own investment advisor with no minimums. Learn more at yourwella.com. That's Y-O-U-R-W-E-L-A.com. All right. And we're back with David Trice, CEO of Engage CX. So we talked before about this term omni-channel. Um, and that sounds super buzzwordy. Is it buzzwordy? How do retailers get better at it? Talk to me about what that word really means. Oh, that's, that's a great question. And hopefully we can give it justice uh, in the time remaining. So Omnichannel is having a bit of a resurgence. There was a time a couple of years ago where Omnichannel really meant, can I get my e-commerce platform on every device? It was something as simple as that. I need to be able to have my consumers purchase wherever they happen to be. And and that got kind of old because everybody did it. And then Omnichannel kind of became almost a red herring for for not really meaning anything. It's actually starting to to have a bit of a resurgence because of the fact that that, uh, Omnichannel is truly now becoming uh, the, the consumers, from the consumer's point of view, where I go. 
not so much where my e-commerce platform in, it lives. So it's, it's, it's taking that outside-in view versus that inside-out view. Where is the customer engaging with me? On what channel are they engaging with me? Because we as consumers, we don't really care about what a channel is, right? That's just a way to describe the fact that I walked in a store versus went to the website. The change is happening because retailers are realizing that that's the point of view that I need to take. And that's why it's becoming hot and interesting topic again, being able to serve their customers in an omni-channel way on our customers' terms versus just being sure I can have an e-commerce presence. And it goes beyond being able to say, I think for a while it used to be, just make sure you're available everywhere. That's our business strategy is website mobile optimized, stores, better hours, inventory full. Sounds like what you're saying is, the customer has to know where to find you. And it's a much more one-on-one relationship with how that customer interacts with the website, not just that your site is mobile optimized. It has to fit that customer's needs, regardless of where they are. Oh, it is. And there's a very strong notion of personalization that Mm -hmm. falls out of that conversation. And and being able to know, as we described a moment ago, you abandoned a shopping cart online, but being able to carry that reality with you the next time you engage, because you might still be interested in that pair of shoes. It's not that you didn't want to buy them and you're going to change your mind about the shoes altogether. The time just wasn't right. So we've got to be able to know and, and to personalize along those lines. That's really taking the consumer's point of view is knowing, I know who you are. I know what your interests are. I know perhaps you're my platinum customer or not. And the fact that you gauge online versus a store really becomes inconsequential going forward. I need to know those things about you when you engage on your terms. All right. So how does it actually work in the retail? All right. So Ashley goes online, is about to spend $42,000 on some on a pair of Anola Blahnik shoes, <laughs> abandons the cart and goes into a retail. Right. What happens? I, I, used to, I used to envision a scenario by which we all would be wearing Google glasses and I would be standing in the store and a customer would walk in and their profile would pop up on my reader and it'd say, this is their cloud score. This is what they are. They were just on this. And then the next guest would walk in with a lower cloud score. So I would, of course, go serve the person with a higher cloud score. But what happens when when Ashley, who just went on online and abandoned the shopping cart, what happens? Does, does the clerks get a text to say, hey, Ashley just walked in the door and she was shopping for this? Right. How does that actually work? Take a, a bit of a half step back. One of the key things to our solution is identification. Right? It's got to it's got to be the first step of every process. Right? Uh, who is Ashley and and how do I know her? This is a, a an element of omni-channel thinking because every channel that you engage on requires a different unique identifier. You know, if it's the call center, it's a, f- a phone number. If it's the website, it's a unique identifier of some sort for the for you and the browser and the device that you're on. Uh, if it's in the store, it's your phone and perhaps a Mac a Mac address. If it's uh, an email platform, it's your email address. So there's a lot of different ways that Ashley is Ashley. And so how do you put all that together so that no matter where she pops up? I'm always able to identify who she is. And so we've built a a bit of our secret sauce, kind of a giant index in the sky, if you will, that has all of these varying types of contacts points for Ashley. Our business process is kind of at the lowest level of thinking about what we do. When our process gets executed, the very first question on every event that fires off is, who is this person? What identifier did I just get? Let me look up in my giant index in the sky and see if that matches anybody in particular. And then when I, I pull that identifier out and say, ah, that's Ashley, let me get her profile and bring it into this moment. So now that I know everything that you've done historically, all your interests, all your patterns of behavior and so forth are now available for me to then kind of drive the next step. So she was online, she went to the store, in the store, there's a number of different ways that uh, that you can actually engage, both digitally and physically. I and mean, we think about them much like on a website as points of attribution. 
You're either known in the store or you're not known. And, and you can be known in a couple of different ways. The associate might know you or you might be recognized by Wi-Fi. So let's just assume you're recognized by Wi-Fi, for instance, and you've been to the store before, much like a Starbucks. We all connect instantly when we go to Starbucks, right? Because we're on their Wi-Fi, we spend time there and so forth. Well, in a similar kind of vein, Ashley walks in the store, a couple of things happen. She gets a, a welcome page, splash screen on her, on her computer. It says, hey, Ashley, welcome back. I saw you were online the other day. Would you like to continue that experience? At the same time, guess what else happens? Well, there's an associate not far away that says, hey, Ashley spends $42,000 on shoes. You probably ought to go pay attention to her, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so it's that kind of, again, back to that central nervous system, being able to have access to the data and the behavioral patterns that Ashley represents, and then to use and syndicate that in these moments that matter. It's important to know that a woman who's going to spend $42,000 on shoes coming, because I want to treat that as a very important relationship. In my view, it's equally as important for someone to walk in the door that has no profile because then I can that that will inform how I approach that potential customer and and try to learn some things, right? Right, absolutely. And and so it really boils down to kind of your brand strategy. You know, how do you want to engage your customers? Is it is it something where you want to make sure you're delivering the true white glove high-level experience to your best customers or do you want to be able to have the opportunity to greet everybody the same? And, and that actually can boil down to something as simple as what's your staffing philosophy? Do you have enough resources to cover the number of people that walk in the store? Do you want to do it digitally to try and gather just attribution from a certain class of people? Getting a little bit technical into the thought process, but there's a lot of different ways to roll that engagement strategy out depending upon what your brand strategy for engagement is. CRM has typically been B2B and those principles haven't changed much as CRMs have gotten you know, more advanced. So for B2C, what are some of the principles of a B2B CRM that are reused in this? But then what are some of the things that make this truly a B2C CRM? Yeah. So back in the day when B2B CRM was invented, it was all about pipeline visibility. It was a report. And you'll remember the, the discussions of 20, 25 years ago where it was BD the sales rep up to enter data about his deals so the sales manager could have visibility into his pipeline, right? That's what B2B CRM was built on. In the B2C world, that desire is the same. The problem is, is there's no sales manager. The, the commonality is what we refer to, if you think about the, the stages of the pipeline in B2B, we have stages of a life cycle. So every one of these events that I talk about, one of the things we do is behind the scenes in this business process that I described, uh, we map all of those events to a stage of the life cycle. Now, the life cycle and where you show up on the life cycle is driven by you, the consumer. And, and so that's that's one of the big differences. The, the core concept philosophically is the same, but how you execute that is phenomenally different because it's an outside-in driven process. But what that allows us to do is really normalize all of the activity that happens with my consumers on a common life cycle so that now I can start to understand that you're inquiring, you're considering, you're engaging, you're purchasing, you're using, you're maintaining, and see where you are relative to the other behavior that you've engaged in, as well as where you are with regards to your peers. And, and that gives me a line of sight in uh, visibility into uh, how I'm doing as a business at delivering the experiences that translate then into revenue. And it probably makes it a lot easier to track lifetime customer value, I would think. From my time in retail, I was coming into established companies, so they would just tell me the LTV and I went with it. And I don't think I ever actually knew how they determined that number 
because you don't have that one person's data. It's right. just kind of this general assumption. And it, I would think you could really do some great work with LTV by using CRM. There's no doubt. And, and it's one of the core tenets of, of the platform that, that we have. And if we think about, we refer to uh, our kind of output along those lines as the customer value index. And it's really um, infused by four key dimensions around engagement frequency, purchase frequency, sentiment, and advocacy. Now, let me break that down for you. And we'll just use a couple of, uh, of these key dimensions. Let's say you're a Starbucks Platinum customer. And that's largely gauged by purchases with almost every company. How much you spend with them is generally, by and large, with any firm, going to dictate where you fall in the in the loyalty program. What if you also knew that, uh, that Todd's your best customer? He, he sends out the worst tweets about you on a daily basis. So he buys the most, but he actually hates you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is that still your best customer? And, and would you treat them differently along those lines? And so having a view into lifetime value that captures more along the attribution scale around these core four key uh, dimensions is, is really important on the consumer side of the world because lifetime value and sentiment is a fleeting thing. Loyalty is a fleeting thing. And you need to be able to track it over time because it fluctuates. And its influence and the sentiment's influence and advocacy's influence on purchases is very real and a very hard line connection. So that having a point in time understanding of lifetime value is no longer appropriate for a consumer. You have to track it over time. You have to know where they are at that point in time and where they've come from to truly know whether you've got a a customer that's going to stay with you for the lifetime or not. When I'm thinking about the idea of a B2C CRM, there's not a bank of 30 interns in the back room typing in all this consumer data. Right. We're talking about taking all this this data that exists. And I think that's what Engage CX does is it helps an organization say, all right, we have all this data. And typical across all swaths of, of industry, we're good at collecting data. We suck at doing meaningful, actionable things with that. And I suspect that's what, what you guys do. How does that process start? So a retail outlet with an online online store contacts you and says, we need help. How does that process begin? You know, we're, we're, we try to make it as simple as possible. We're a cloud-based service, uh, as you almost have to be these days. Um, we have a, a, a setup process with including integration into Wi-Fi that can happen in a couple of days. Right, So as, as sophisticated as all of this sounds, it's very simple to drop a tag on a website, capture a number of events, and, and, and expand some attribution in a couple of days on the website, uh, go to a handful of stores and put uh, Wi-Fi gear, use our integration to drive the in-store visibility day one. And in, 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 in a matter of a week, we can start capturing data that shows customer journeys between the website and the store that companies have never seen seen before. So it's a very simple process. And our our pricing model is a consumption-based pricing model. So the more events that run through our platform, the more you pay. Our approach is is somewhat of a land and expand. Let's find a small starting point. Let's do a couple of stores. Let's get them up and running. Let's show you the value of the data and the visibility that you get as a result, the conversions that you can now track between the website and the store and that level of visibility. And with that success, Let's roll it out and increase the scope to more stores and more portions of the website and so forth. So beacon technology was like the big word like four or five years ago. Is that the same thing as what you guys are doing with Wi-Fi? Is that different? Is beacon even still a thing? And I know it was freaking a whole bunch of people out. 
I think we're more comfortable with Wi-Fi. But what what happened with that? Well, so it hadn't gone away. It it has become understood. In a lot of ways, beacons are all about personalization, right? In-store personalization. No different than when you go to somebody's website and you've been there and they've been watching and tracking cookies just on your website and they say, hey, I, I saw you look at shoes. Here's a brown pair of shoes you might like. Beacon technology was by and large intended to do the same kind of thing. Micro-personalization in the store, right? Well, the problem with that is it requires an app, right? right? And once you have the app, there's another couple of gates that you have to go through. You have to tell the app that, yeah, you can uh, send me notifications. And then in order to, to be recognized in the store, you have to have Bluetooth turned on. And, and so you get through all those gates and you walk in the store and maybe you get a, a push notification that is helpful or not. So there's a, a number of gates that we as consumers get frustrated with. And I turn that stuff off because I can't stand it. And if you end up getting a watch like this, you'll realize what notifications really mean because <laughs> it, your hand's always buzzing. So that's where beacons are. The beacons, however, from our point of view, are not irrelevant. Uh, if you go back to the store, and, and I was describing a moment ago as all these uh, points of attribution in the store, we kind of have a, a, a layers of the onion thought process when it comes to the store. Our backbone is Wi-Fi. But if you wanted to get very precise with location in a store, beacons still serve a purpose. And there's some things going on where uh, beacons on Google are being built into the browser, and it's going to try and overcome some of these gates and hurdles that exist. But if somebody's standing at the end cap of a store and you want to know precisely that they're standing there so you can give them an offer for the product that's right in front of them, beacons actually can serve a very good purpose. From our point of view, that's just another point of attribution. Now I've gone from the macro level, where am I at regionally in the store, to I'm standing in front of a of, a, uh, of an end cap, I can attach to that event and get full attribution on that event so I understand your journey a little bit more fully. And there's another la- layer of the onion that goes beyond beacons from our point of view, which is things like uh, barcode scans or RFID tags for an item. Now I saw that you picked up the blue pair of shoes that have brown laces and you've barcode scanned them specifically. So now I've gone from the macro view, where have you, when did you show up at the store? Where did you go? How did you, what was your journey in the store? You're standing in front of the, the end cap. You've picked up the very specific pair of shoes. Guess what? That's no different than a website. That's our view of, of these different technologies and how they play themselves out in the store. It's just another layer of, of attribution for us. And it really becomes what it is that the the brand wants to do in terms of trying to deliver an experience or gather attribution in terms of the technologies they choose to implement. This is going to get really creepy, but maybe it's very common. So I don't know. That's what I want to ask. So I'm still intrigued by this idea of how you can, you can, through a GPS, you can see, you can figure out where Ashley is in the store. Well, to be honest, she's going to be in the ladies' shoes section. (laughs) Let's say I go into the Nike outlet. The day before, I went on Nike.com, was looking at some running shoes, and then I went into the store the next day, and I abandoned both. What What is the possibility of you, of Nike, tracking the Adidas store down the way a bit, and all of a sudden, my B2C CRM says, ooh, my potential shopper just walked into Adidas. Boom, let's text him a, a 20% sale coupon for Nike. Is that happening? Can that happen? Well, it, it, can, it actually can happen. So we, we refer to what we do in-store as micro-geofencing, right? That's kind of inside the four walls. There's just a very generic layer of geofencing that takes place. And you can, using um, the radio signals from your phones, set up geofences on large geographic areas. And there are services and providers out there that allow you to sign up for uh, that service where a brand can absolutely, Nike can absolutely kind of geofence on top of 
you know, macro ge- geographically on top of the Adidas store and see whenever you walk inside a fence and, and use that data to drive campaigns, push notifications and things of that nature. It really hadn't taken off like it possibly could have and, and might over time, but the technology is possible. Absolutely. That's just crazy to me. Yeah. That's so bizarre. So uh, to focus back on your business itself, what are you, what are your plans for this year? What do you have coming up? Are you hiring? What's the next big thing? Talk so, so 2016 is a big launch year for us. Uh, so just a, to a bit of chronology, uh, we launched our service publicly in uh, late spring this year, uh, or early spring this year, late, late, uh, late March, I guess. And so the better part of the year, we've been working with uh, initial customers, really ironing out the kinks and finding the fit and, and getting to the use case that really, really matters. Um, and uh, through a couple of partnerships, uh, one with uh, Cisco and, and, and as we were talking earlier, and uh, a few other companies in town, we're going into the beginning of the year. We've got a, a pretty large event that we're planning for the National Retail Federation show in uh, late January that'll be a bit of a coming out party for us. And so next year for us, we are anticipating hitting the slipstream. With the messaging that you guys have heard today, it's all been refined over the last four or five months. Uh, the story and the use cases and the applic- applicability and the ability to turn it on quickly, all of that has been maturing very rapidly and to the point where now we'll, uh, we'll, we'll really have a major launch beginning uh, uh, with the impetus of NRF in January and push that into a pretty aggressive sales campaign for the rest of the year. So all things go as planned. We'll be adding lots of customers and hiring fairly dramatically over the course of 2016. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show to give us an update. And yeah, look forward to it. Progressing. It's going to be fun to watch this space. I, I have a feeling we've barely scratched the surface on what's possible at this point. Oh, I think you're right. I, it, even some of the things that we see as possible going forward, um, our, our, our customers you know, think we're, you know, out in Star Trek land uh, too far. So it, it's going to be fun to see what direction our customers want to go once they start really understanding the value of the data that they have. Well, that's going to impact their training for Absolutely. the people they have to hire because they have to have someone savvy enough to understand the magic that they now have available at, at their fingertips. That's very, exactly right. Very cool. Well, David, we'll have, definitely have you, have you back on the show. Lots more to talk about on this cool subject. So, but for today, we're running low on time. Uh, as you're aware, uh, the incubator is made possible by Wella. So it's time for the Wella question of the week, which is, what is the best piece of financial advice you have ever received or given? It has to be what my dad shared with me. My dad was a bit of a, an entrepreneur as well, and he, he dabbled in real estate, although never never was the big tycoon, but he always had sound, uh, sound advice. And his advice to me was, create opportunities for yourself by saving enough money to then invest in things like real estate when the market goes down. Said, just look for those opportunities, and and if you can if you can take advantage of that and put yourself in that situation where you're in an in an opportunity to spend the money when the time is right, he said that'll pay off for you long term. And I've used that advice on a number of different occasions, both in uh, in real estate as well as in just traditional investing. You know, you got to create the opportunity, and you can't act if you don't if you're not in a position to act. So, um, a little bit of preparation and uh, opportune time. When those things come together, you can uh, you can take the best uh, best of uh, of the situation and and uh, and really gain from it. Great advice. And did you give d- dad his cut? <laughs> I uh, I gave him a big hug. How about All that? Right. <laughs> so the answer is no. All right, David Trice, the CEO of Engage CX. Great to have you. Thanks for stopping by. Great, Nick. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps today's conversation. Again, on behalf of our guest David Trice, my co-host Ashley Staggs, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you next week on The Incubator. You've been listening to The Incubator, recorded from the Wella offices, direct from the Atlanta Tech Village. 
This broadcast is a partnership between the Intrepid Now Media Network and Hypopotamus and made possible by Wella, helping you on your financial journey every step of the way. The Incubator is directed by Andrea Risk and produced by Floyd Fischel. You can find The Incubator on iTunes and leaving a rating and review on iTunes will be appreciated by all. Again, you've been listening to The Incubator. The show will return next week. We'll see you then.